A mysterious hole through a rooftop. A bizarre cryptic note. A charismatic newlywed man excited for his future. Yet his life was unexpectedly gone in an instant. Was there Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. There a big secret this young man found out that wasn't supposed to. Today we're going to look into the puzzling death of a man named Ray Rivera. His story and case is a perplexing one, and one that I don't believe, as well as others don't believe, it's finished or solved yet. Ray's case was featured on Netflix on Unsolved Mysteries, Season 1, Episode 1, Mysteries on the Rooftop. Viewers have been clamoring since at finding out what the truth is, offering theories, and asking a whole lot of questions. The story begins in Baltimore, Maryland in 2006. Ray Rivera at the time was a 32-year-old young newlywed man who lived in Baltimore and went missing in May of 2006. His body was found just over a week after his disappearance at the Belvedere Hotel, which in its past was a very popular and spectacular grand hotel. But it turned into a condo complex in 1991, along with a mix of office and retail space. Many notable people have visited this hotel. Its famous line is, meet me at the Belvedere. The hotel also has a lot of secrets of its past. In the Belvedere, Ray was found deceased through a hole in the roof, in an unoccupied conference room on the second floor. There was also a cryptic note that was found, back at his house shortly after his disappearance. Police are chalking Ray's death up to a probable suicide. But it looks to be so much more than that, and other professionals also agree. This video is part one of a series, and I'll be following up with part two. It's a special that you don't want to miss. So don't forget to subscribe, and remember to hit that notification bell. Today we'll climb into the history and the timeline of Ray Rivera, the days leading up to his disappearance, when and where he was found, and the events shortly after. In this video, you'll get the complete story, but in the next, we go deep diving. This case has so many discrepancies. And if a case ever needed connecting of some dots and finding missing pieces to a puzzle, it's this one, in my opinion. So be sure to share this video and remember to give it a like. Now, let's get into it. So in May of 2006, Ray Rivera was 32 years old. He stood 6 feet 5 inches tall and weighed 260 pounds. He was newly married to a woman named Allison Jones. Ray was Puerto Rican and was known to honor his family heritage. He was a water polo player growing up and at the time of his disappearance, he was an assistant coach at the John Hopkins University. The head coach of the university does not think that Ray killed himself. He said, Ray's passing hit me very hard. He was an inspiration and helped our team win a national championship last year. Ray Rivera did not commit suicide. I cannot prove it, but I would mortgage the house on it. Ray had a fear of heights. What was he doing up there? His wife, Allison, described Ray and said he had a smile that lit up a room. 
He had a great sense of humor and always would find the funny in everything. According to Ray's brother, Angel, he said he had a hysterical, awesome, and keen sense of humor. People gravitated toward him. His mother also mentions that he was always laughing and finding the funny in things. Ray's dream was to become a writer and a director. Film was everything to him, and family was everything to him. Growing up, Ray's family moved around a lot, being part of a military family. They had to make friends all the time. The one real constants in his life were his sister and his brother. They were really close. But before Ray moved to Baltimore, he and his family were living in Southern California. In the year 2000, when Ray was about 26 years old, Ray met Allison in an LA bar and the two started dating. Then two years later in 2002, the couple moved in together. Ray at the time had a career as a screenwriter. Allison believed Ray was her true soulmate. She said, I truly believe it was a soulmate thing. This is your life. This is the guy who has been in my dreams. I can't say exactly what it was that connected me to him, but that's how it was. Two years later in 2004, Ray and Allison relocated to Baltimore from Southern California after his high school friend named Frank Porter Stansberry, who just goes by Porter, urged Ray to move to Baltimore and work as a copywriter and an editor for his company called Stansberry & Associates. The firm published financial letters called The Rebound Report. It gave stock tips that aren't doing so well, but could do well, or had potential to do well in the future. It was said that Ray jumped at the opportunity. Allison said he wanted to make enough money so we could get married. He wanted to buy me a ring. Now, at the time, Porter Stansberry didn't have the best reputation. A year before, in 2003, the SEC, that is the Securities and Exchange Commission, sued Porter and his company, saying that his newsletter contained nothing more than baseless speculation and outright lies. They accused him of a scheme to defraud public investors by disseminating false information in several internet newsletters. Now, the year before that, in May 2002, an email was sent out from the company offering the name of another company on the New York Stock Exchange in exchange for $1,000. He said he had information that the stock would basically skyrocket. The email header said, double your money on May 22nd on this super insider tip. Now, around 1,200 people bought in and Porter made a cool $1.2 million from one email. In the New York Times, this is what it said. It seemed like a pretty hot stock tip. About a year ago, thousands of subscribers to financial newsletters received an email message claiming that a certain company's share price would double after an announcement at a summit meeting in St. Petersburg, Russia. There was, of course, a catch. To learn the name of the company, recipients of the message would have to pony up $1,000. In mid-May 2002, about 1,200 people did just that. Before long, trading volume surged and the company's stock price spiked, but the summit meeting came and went without the announcement and the stock fell back down close to its original price. The Securities and Exchange Commission has since sued the author of the email message and his employer for securities fraud. If the suit is successful, it will be the first to use the securities laws against commentary about a company in which the authors had no financial stake. The defendants are Frank Porter Stansberry and Agora Inc., which publishes books and newsletters in Baltimore and says it had more than 100 million in sales last year. They have filed a motion to dismiss the suit, arguing that the First Amendment protects their publications no less than mainstream financial journalism. So the SEC won the suit. It took four years, but in 2007, a judge ordered Porter Stansberry and his then-called investment 
firm Pirate Investment LLC to pay back $1.5 million. It said Pirate must pay $801,600 in restitution along with the interest of $248,496 while Stansbury has to pay $200,400 in restitution and $62,124 in interest. Each party has also been assessed a penalty payment of $120,000. Now back to Ray. It was said that Ray came to help clean up Porter's reputation and doing it through this job of Porter's rebound report. And it was also stated that Porter was quite persistent about it. But Allison said the job wasn't a good fit for her husband. She said he didn't like the eight to five period. He wasn't a desk guy and he just didn't believe in what he was doing. Allison Ray made a pact that they would move to Baltimore, stay there for 24 months, and then relocate back to Los Angeles so that Ray could pursue his dream of a career in film. In fact, Ray had been working on a screenplay before his death. So in December 2004, they found a home, a church, and a community in Baltimore. They lived in the Northwood area of Baltimore at 4113 Westview Road in a three-bedroom home. Allison said they were excited about their life together, their future, and Ray wanted a family. Everything seemed to be going well for them. She said that they were so happy. Now their 24-month pact would mean that they would stay until December 2006 and then move back to LA. But Ray and Allison were seven months short of that 24-month mark. So Ray worked for his buddy Porter. He eventually quit that job in fall of 2005, but he still took freelance work for Stansberry and under the umbrella company Agora. Family and friends said that Ray was not happy because the stocks that he was writing about in this rebound report weren't rebounding, which could mean that the people who bought the stocks that Ray wrote about would lose their money. Now from the fall of 2005 up until the time of his death, Ray began freelancing and producing videos for the other subcompany of Agora called the Oxford Club. Right before his death, Ray was working on a video project for that company and he had a tight deadline. Now six months before Ray's death, in November 2005, Ray and Allison got married on the beach in a little town called Isabella in Puerto Rico. They got married in front of friends and family, and it said that they're so in love and couldn't wait to start a family. It was also said that Porter Stansberry arrived by his private helicopter to attend the wedding. Their wedding was around the same time that Ray quit writing for the rebound report. Six months after that wedding, Ray went missing and was found deceased. Now, in the weeks leading up to Ray's death, there was some very strange events. Let's get into the timeline. In 2004, Ray and Allison move to Baltimore. Ray takes on that job for Stansberry. Allison and Ray make a pact for 24 months to be in Baltimore and then relocate back to Los Angeles where Ray would pitch his screenplay called Midnight Polo. It's a story of a young female polo player who makes it to the Olympics. Allison says, this is what is so crazy about this. We're planning on moving and starting a new life. He had a future. Why would he decide just then to kill himself? And in spring of 2006, they visited LA to plan their move back. But when they returned to Baltimore, Allison said that Ray started behaving differently, uncharacteristically. As I said, Ray died in May of 2006, on May 16th to be exact. And two weeks before that day, Allison said something worried him. She said, it started then, he started going everywhere with me, he wouldn't let me do anything. Now they were really close and often spent a lot of time together. But those few weeks before, Allison said that Ray's behavior was unusual. He insisted that he tag along everywhere she went. She said he was even more protective than usual. Then about a week before his disappearance, Allison wanted to go to the running track and Ray said he'd go with her. He insisted that he go with her. She said, I was like, Ray, I'm okay, but 
he said he would come along. Ray sat in the bleachers reading while Allison ran the track. It was said that he was reading a book that weekend called The Builders, a book about Freemasons. It's not clear if that was the exact book he was reading while Allison was running on the track, but it was said he was reading The Builders book that weekend. And while Ray read, Allison said that a man appeared, and she also recalls Ray freaking out. Now, nothing happened, but Allison said that Ray seemed unnerved. She said it wasn't like him. So then on Mother's Day, Sunday, May the 14th, just two days before Ray went missing, Ray and Allison went to church. When they got back, Ray was overheard leaving a voicemail that said, hey man, give me a call back. I finally got it all figured out. He left that message on Porter's voicemail. When Porter was questioned by Ray's brother, Angel, Porter said that he didn't know what Ray meant or what it was about. So then Ray and Allison go to bed that night. And then in the early hours, which is now Monday, May 15th, their house alarm goes off. That was around 1 a.m. Ray leapt out of bed and Allison recalled the fear that Ray had. She said, Ray came flying out with this big bat and the fear in his eyes scared me to death. It literally made me sick. He had a look in his eyes I had never seen before. Ray was scared. He's a big Latin guy and he's macho. It wasn't him. The next evening on Tuesday, May the 16th, the alarm went off again and then Ray freaked out again. It's reported to be about the same time as the night before. Allison said, someone was trying to get into the house. I believe it was connected to his death. It really hit me because I wasn't used to seeing Ray like that. It really hit me then. When Allison told the police about the attempted break-ins, the detective told her that it was probably squirrels that set off the alarms. She said, they came a week later and fingerprinted the bottom sill, but said it was probably a squirrel. You had to push in the screen back to trip the alarm. I don't think a squirrel could do that. Now, Ray never did share to Allison what was bothering him. She said, if he had told me anything, whatever it was, I would have shared it with the world. I have nothing to hide. So already there's some odd happenings going on. Ray has been acting off for the last couple weeks and seems fearful on edge. He's reading books and what seems perhaps to be doing some sort of research on Freemasonry. He leaves a voicemail to Porter saying that he's figured something out. He goes to sleep that same night and then is awoken by an alarm at 1 a.m. and the next day, someone tries to break in again. Then later that day, Ray goes missing. Was it a coincidence that after Ray leaves the voicemail to Porter and says he figured something out and then the alarms start going off that night, the next night, and then later on that day, he winds up dead? Was it something he wasn't supposed to figure out or is it even connected? Now on the morning of May 16th, the day of Ray's disappearance, which is the same morning that that second alarm went off just hours prior. Allison said she was a little tired and Ray got up and made her breakfast. She told him, I love you so much. And Ray said to her, thank you for loving me so much. Allison had a business trip to go on that day. It was in Richmond, Virginia, which is about a three hour drive away. She said Ray carried her suitcase to the car and then she drove off. Now on this day as well, Ray talked to a member of a Maryland Lodge about memberships and joining the Freemasons. It was said there was nothing strange or unusual about the conversation. It was said it was something typical of someone who wanted to learn about becoming a member. Ray also bought a book that day called Freemasons for Dummies at a local bookstore. So it was reported Ray read The Builders the weekend before and on that afternoon he bought Freemason for Dummies. Maybe Ray was trying to figure something out or understand something from these books or perhaps he just wanted to learn about it and nothing more. Allison said Ray was intrigued by secret societies and said that maybe he was planning on something for 
a future project. Allison also stated that Ray had a deadline for the Oxford Club for a video project. In that late afternoon, Ray called a man named Adam Gold from Chesapeake Systems. Ray was an occasional customer and rented video editing equipment to do projects for his clients. On the phone, Ray booked a video editing suite for the following weekend so that he could finish editing a video of a conference sponsored by Stansberry and Associates. Adam said, it was around 4 p.m. I had gotten a call from him. How's it going? I'm under the gun to get this project out. I was hoping you guys would have an edit system I could use over the weekend. He goes on to say, totally not someone who'd want to throw themselves off a building. And when he described the phone call, he says it was too banal. He sounded like he was under crunch for work. He sounded laid back. I need to get this accomplished. And it sounded like a fairly average editing task. So at 5 p.m., according to the FBI report, Ray gets a phone call and leaves the house. There have been conflicting statements as to when Ray actually left the house, the FBI report says five o'clock, others report as early as 4 p.m., 5.30 p.m., 6 p.m., and 6.30 p.m., but the FBI report says 5 p.m. Now, sometime that afternoon, Ray left the house with his keys, his cell phone, and a $20 bill in his shorts pocket, according to the missing poster. But the police report states Ray was last seen wearing a black and white Puma jacket and pants. So in a hurry, Ray left the house without saying a word. And at the time, there was a house guest named Claudia staying there. She overheard Ray pick up that phone. One of the authorities on the Unsolved Mysteries special said that he was overheard saying, oh, and then left. But then Ray returns for a moment and then leaves the house again. He leaves a snack on the counter of grapefruit soda and sour cream and onion chips and his Invisaligns. Now, according to Allison, the phone call came from a switchboard at Stansberry and Associates. Allison finished her work that day at around 6 or 6.30 p.m. She checks into the hotel, goes to her room, and then calls Ray with no answer. Allison checks in on him again. Hours later, still no Ray. Allison does think this is unusual, but she also knew that Ray had a deadline to hit for that video. Now, in a book called An Unexplained Death, the true story of a body at the Belvedere, and I will have that link in the description below. It was said in there that Ray actually had a website up on his computer of the sunset and sunrise times in Baltimore. And according to that day, the time was 8.13 p.m. for sunset. Now, from the Rivera home to the Belvedere is approximately a 10 to 20 minute drive. That is if he went straight there. Now, a nearby parking lot attendant left at 6 p.m. that day and he didn't see Ray's black SUV in that lot at the time of his leaving. Now, the same author who notes the sunset time, she lived in the Belvedere at the time and lived on the fifth floor in an east-facing condo. That night, she noted in her journal that there was a loud sound outside at approximately 10 p.m. Now, on Wednesday, May 17th, the next morning at 5 a.m., Allison phones Claudia, the house guest, and Claudia says to Allison, there's still no sign of Ray. Allison says she's not really one to panic, but something isn't right, so she heads home. At 7 a.m., the parking lot attendant returns to work and discovers Ray's vehicle in the parking lot. The house cast Claudia leaves that morning back to New York. By 3 p.m. that day, a call goes into the authorities for a missing person. Allison says she was driving back from out of town and she was calling everyone. She called Ray's parents in Puerto Rico. She called Ray's brother, Angel. And Angel said that Ray's not the kind of guy to disappear and it was so out of the ordinary. So Angel hops a flight on that day by one o'clock or two and flies from Orlando to Baltimore. Other family members of both Ray and Allison 
arrive in town over the next two days. When Allison arrived home, she said that Ray's Invisaligns, soda, and chips were there on the counter. She said the lights in the bedroom and the office were on, but Ray wasn't anywhere to be found. By 7 p.m., Angel landed. Friends came in to help as well. Ray's parents and Allison's parents came in the next day. Allison said she then cleared out the dining room and got to work in finding Ray. Where do we have to go? What do we have to do? She said hospitals were called and Porter Stansberry put up a $1,000 reward. Now, three days after that, on May 20th, that was when Ray had the video editing suite booked for that day. And on Monday, May 22nd, six days after Ray's disappearance, Allison's parents are searching for Ray's vehicle and they find it mid-afternoon in a parking lot on St. Paul's Street which is an open lot and his black SUV is sitting in parking stall number seven. There was a ticket on his vehicle and it had been there since he disappeared, according to the parking lot attendant. The location of the parking lot is very close to the Belvedere Hotel and also close to Stansbury and Associates. Searches were then organized around the area of where Ray's vehicle was found. Now on Wednesday, May 24th, while combing the area for any signs of Ray, three of his former co-workers were standing on top of a parking garage next to the Belvedere and spotted flip-flops next to a hole in the roof of the second floor concourse of the Belvedere. Allison said that the only way to spot the hole was either from on top of the Belvedere Hotel or from this parking garage. Ray's brother Angel described the hole and said it looked like a black spot on this white roof. It's not a big hole. The three men then called the police. The hole led to Ray's body in a locked, empty conference room. It was said that this office was called the Old Church Space or Old Racquetball Club. It's my understanding it also used to be a pool. Now, the police asked the Belvedere concierge to open up the door, and when he went in there, he said he immediately could see and smell the body. Ray was found there face down, and the employee said that you could see the wall where the blood came down and Ray's legs were towards the door. He said he looked up and saw a hole in the ceiling and saw outside, and he said he came through the metal and through the ceiling. Now, a detective, his name's Detective Michael Bayer, said he came vertical through that thing like a projectile. Detective Bayer was on scene and was the one who wrote the police report. Now, according to what was said in Unsolved Mysteries, no one seemed to have heard anything or had seen anything that day or night. But in the journal of the author I mentioned earlier, she wrote she heard a huge crash the night of Ray's death. And her condo is said to be on the fifth floor and overlook the roof with the hole where Ray went through. She said she chalked it up to random city sounds, but she did note it in her journal. Now, there are so many oddities and discrepancies in Ray's story. Let's go back for a moment to where he was found. It was reported that not one person saw Ray go into that hole or through that roof. And aside from one person noting something in her journal, the author, there wasn't any other account of hearing anything or seeing anything. And this woman wasn't questioned about it. A man supposedly jumps off the building and goes through a rooftop and no one hears or sees a thing. Detective Bayer said, no one could give us any indication that Ray was inside the building. No one saw this man that night. No witnesses, no phone calls, no jailhouse snitches. We had nothing. Interestingly, the security camera that was on the roof was disconnected, or is the word that I should use conveniently. Now, there are 112 condo units in that building and only one person noticed a sound. It was also said that you'd have to go through a door that's usually locked to get to the roof area, and you'd have to know how to get there. Also what was noted, 
is you'd have to go through back stairwells and some aren't open to the public. Now that rooftop is said to be pretty delicate. Detectives were nervous to go on the roof for fear of falling through it. And there are several theories about how Ray went through that rooftop. Theory number one is he came from on top of the roof of the Belvedere. Detective Bear said, immediately nothing about the evidence at that point felt good to me. The rooftop location of the hole, I didn't believe it. Ray went off that top of the roof. Theory number two, he jumped from the garage rooftop adjacent to the building, but the hole was far away and the top of the garage was only 20 feet. It was said Ray's injuries were very severe and that theory was put to rest pretty quickly. Theory number three, Ray jumped from the 11th floor, but you'd have to go through someone's personal property or office to get to it. Also, the windows only opened halfway. That hole is still a mystery to this day. Which part of the building did Ray come off of? Or did he come off from a building? Ray's brother Angel says it does not add up. He said, when I had the courage, I went down to the parking lot and looked up at the top of the hotel and said there's no way he could have landed that far out from the roof. The second floor conference room juts out from the main tower of the 13-story building. There were some employees from the Belvedere that talked to Angel in confidence and said Ray would have had to been pushed from the side of the building. Angel said apparently there's another set of doors to the roof and their impression was that was more logical that he would have been pushed from there. Now, what's interesting is there was an engineering study and it was estimated the distance from Ray's body landed from the wall was approximately 43 feet and he would have been running roughly 11 miles per hour in flip-flops. Now, one of the latest theories is theory number four. He was potentially dropped from a helicopter. Again, though, the question is, wouldn't people have seen or heard the helicopter. Detective Bayer says, airspace issues, people hearing the helicopter, you're not going to hover down in a helicopter that low. If he would have been dropped at an altitude higher than the building, who knows where he could have went. He also asks, if you have a man already in a helicopter and you want to dispose of the body, the harbor is a 30 second ride down. Why drop the body through the hotel roof, he said. And in the 2006 autopsy report, it says, this 32-year-old Hispanic male, Ray Omar Rivera, formerly unknown, number 063524, died of multiple injuries sustained as a result of precipitation from a 13-story building. According to the investigation, the decedent had been missing for approximately one week and was discovered moderately decomposed in a locked conference room on the second floor of the building. A hole was in the roof above his body. Injuries at the time of autopsy were consistent with a fall from a height and included multiple lacerations, tearing of the skin, abrasions, scrapes, and contusions, bruises, multiple skull fractures with injury of the brain, multiple fractures of the sternum and ribs, bones of the chest, with injuries of the heart and lungs, and fracture of the right tibia and fibula, bones of the lower leg. Because the circumstances surrounding the incident are unclear and it is not known how the deceased came to have precipitated from such a height, the manner of death is best classified as undetermined. Alcohol detected in the decomposition fluid may be entirely or in part due to decompositional changes. Toxicology testing for drugs was negative. Now, what's interesting 
is there is a medical illustrator that took all the findings of this autopsy report and created a diagram and report. This woman is a forensic expert in Europe. She's made reports for hundreds of trials, including impact biomechanic and crime scenes. She has 25 years of experience. Ray's injuries were extensive. There were internal and external injuries head injuries, lung, heart, and liver lacerations, broken bones, his shin bone protruded from his skin. This expert found that there weren't any indications of injuries to his arm or hands. She believed his injuries were inconsistent with the fall and she had wondered if he was maybe beaten up because of his extensive head and neck injuries. Now what's interesting as well in the autopsy report, it said that there wasn't a diagram where Ray was found. No photos, no statements from anyone, which is standard procedure. Now there were items on the rooftop belonging to Ray. His phone and glasses, both of them were found in good condition, good working order, not broken or anything. Detective Bear had this to say about the phone. The phone is one of the things that I will never forget. He talked about how you can take a phone right now and go three stories and drop it off and it wouldn't survive the fall. Yet here, Ray's phone is completely fine. And when you think about it, on top of that Belvedere Hotel, that's a 13-story hotel, and it's 150 feet approximately down. Now, there is a former police commander that actually reviewed the evidence, and he specialized in behavioral assessment. But he said about the cell phone, he said, I just find it to be highly unlikely with that type of kinetic energy hitting that rooftop at the time. I definitely feel that there are a lot of unanswered questions, a lot of loops that need to be closed. His glasses were also found in fine condition as well. I would like to know though, is if Ray wore his glasses or if he had them in his pocket. And I'm curious if he's nearsighted or farsighted. Now his flip-flops, as I mentioned earlier, were also found on the roof. One of the straps to his flip-flops, however, was broken and with what seems to be drag marks on the front. Detective Bear again found all these items strange and he even noted that it seemed staged. There was also something missing that was usually carried by Ray and that was his money clip. Allison gave him the money clip as a gift with his initials RR on it. She says that doesn't seem right that it's just gone. Ray's brother Angel also talked about it and he said Ray liked to carry his ID and his money in it. Where's the money clip? Now there was also a cryptic note that was found back at the house. It was typed in a small font, folded up in plastic, and taped to Ray's computer screen along with a blank check. Some say it was in code, some say it was a psychotic break, some say it's just ramblings, and some say it's something for a future project. The Baltimore Police Department Commander Fred Bealfield said, it just seemed bizarre, really bizarre. So police sent it to the FBI. They examined it and came to the conclusion that it wasn't a suicide note. The commander reviewed it and also agreed. He said, what it does appear to be is a weird stream of conscious writing. The other thing I thought of is if he's writing some type of code to someone about something that's possible. Now stay tuned for that video because it's coming soon. I'll be tackling the note, diving in and seeing what I can figure out to connect the dots. I can say right now that I do not believe it was a suicide note either, but it was and is an important note.
In fact, I do believe it's in code, and I do believe I may have struck something. Now, there was something else that was also found on Ray's body. Allison had given him a small little penny that had a heart cut out of it. She had found it on one of her work trips, and she brought it home and gave it to him. She said, whenever you need me, you hold this penny and know I'm close. But Ray kept that penny in a bowl on his dresser, and Allison had always seen it there. But when Ray was found, it was in his pocket. Why did Ray take that penny that day? Let me know your thoughts in the comments below. Now, something to note, Detective Bear did not believe this was a suicide. He, in fact, thought it was a homicide. He felt like the items on the rooftop were staged, and the hole is a mystery. But interestingly, a few weeks after Ray was found, Detective Bear gets taken off the case. The police department seemed to believe that it wasn't worth investigating, as they thought it was nothing more than a suicide, even though the official medical examiner marked this case as undetermined. Now, the family doesn't believe it was suicide either. Angel said, not my brother, it's ironic because he was terrified of heights. And Angel also said that Ray was so scared he was scared to even climb a Christmas tree. He says, that's why I don't buy this whole thing. Ray is someone people notice. How could he walk into the Belvedere and no one would notice or remember anything, a big six foot five guy? It's not possible. And Angel stands six foot eight. Allison talked about Ray's fear of heights as well. She said he wouldn't just jump off the roof. She believes Ray turned over a rock that he wasn't supposed to. But police said to her, you need to get it through your head that your husband committed suicide. He jumped off the roof himself. Allison says, this is not a man who was closing down shop. He was on cloud nine. Everything he had sacrificed was coming to fruition. She said, if that's the answer, which is suicide, I'm okay. But more needs to be done. Not every stone has been turned over. And if in the end, that's what they find out, I will really be okay with it. Now, there has been a lot of speculation on Ray's buddy Porter and that perhaps he was somehow involved. But Porter is said to have had an alibi that night. He said he was out of town that week at St. Michael's on a corporate retreat. He said, every person in our company who had worked with Ray was on the Eastern Shore at the time that call was made, having a corporate retreat in St. Michael's. No one in my company was in town when Ray disappeared. The idea we were calling him from our switchboard is ridiculous. St. Michael's is about an hour and a half away by vehicle and by helicopter, it's about a 20 minute flight. Now, Porter kept fairly quiet about the circumstances. Still to this day, Detective Bayer said that Porter and the office refused to talk to the authorities. He said, unfortunately, the company he worked for, Stansbury, the minute the body was located and I started inquiring about it, put a gag order on all of their employees. Now, every possible person that knew Ray, worked with Ray, or had any answers for me, weren't allowed to legally talk to me, according to company lawyers. That's within hours of Ray's body being discovered, and they lawyered up. Allison said it got strange from there. She said, he's your friend and you have no comment, why? Porter says, the reason I've never commented about Ray's death publicly first and foremost is because I never thought there was any mystery about why or how he died. We were all sad and shocked by the fact that Ray killed himself, but once we saw all the facts and his financial pressures, it wasn't much of a mystery. Porter was also quoted saying, before Ray was found, he's a happy guy. He and his wife had just booked a trip to go to New Mexico in a few weeks. This is not a man that wanted to leave. I've got to find my friend. I can't imagine my life without him. He's my best friend. Now reports also say that Porter didn't attend his memorial or funeral, and many find his behavior as odd. What do you think? He's quoted saying, it's horrific. You can't even imagine what it's like to tell people I have nothing to do with my friend's death. 
Now, I have a lot of questions about this case, and I'm sure at this point you do too. Feel free to comment below and let me know your theories or questions or thoughts below. If it was suicide, why would Ray decide that after the phone call from Stansberry, he would run out of the house and then decide that it's time to commit suicide? Why? Why would Ray book a video editing suite for that upcoming weekend if he wasn't planning to be around? Why even call the guy in the afternoon at all? He wouldn't really care about a deadline or a plan to finish anything, right? If he was described as happy and things were going really well for him and things were coming to fruition, what would make him change his mind and kill himself? Also, he had a vacation booked for New Mexico. And why bring $20 with him? What would he care? And other than being described as something bothering him in the last two weeks, where are the markers to show that Ray was suicidal? Where are the red flags? And if he's so worried about his wife and her safety, and was protective of her and her safety, especially leading up to his death, wouldn't he be afraid of Allison not being safe if he planned on killing himself? She'd be left alone. Who would watch out for her then? Or was it more likely that he was worried someone was watching them or they were in danger? Does a simple voicemail message to Porter that he leaves spark something? The snowball of events of the alarms, the fear, and his death. It doesn't make sense. Maybe it was murder. How does a squirrel set off an alarm two nights in a row around the same time? And where's the money clip? Ray was known to have that money clip with his ID and his money, yet it stated he had $20 in his pocket and his ID was there, yet his money clip is gone. Where is it? How does a security camera be blank on the rooftop and conveniently disconnected on the same day that this happened. Coincidence or something more sinister? And it makes you wonder, did Ray have access to this room or who did? How can the glasses and phone be explained? Completely and totally fine in good condition. Was there any DNA evidence at all surrounding that hole in that rooftop? Is it possible that something else created the hole? Why are there odd discrepancies in that autopsy report? and injuries that can't be explained or are inconsistent. Why run off the roof if you're gonna commit suicide? Is that typical? Or is it typical to just stand on the ledge and fall off? And why bring his shoes with him? My question also is, are flip-flops going to stay on his feet while falling up to 150 feet and land just to the side of the hole? What about the flip side? What if it was foul play? What if that note that was left was in fact code to help figure out what is going on and what happened? And that's why it was taped to the back of the computer in the event that something did happen. What if those items on the rooftop were staged? Like the detective felt they were. The detective that got taken off the case. How does Ray go through that roof and only one person heard a sound that we assume is the sound of Ray going through the roof? Why were standard procedures not done that day? It only takes up to 20 minutes from Ray's house to the Belvedere. Where did he stop beforehand? And where was he for the five hours unaccounted for, if that sound was in fact correct? And why was Porter so quiet throughout? Was he afraid of something as well? Or was he involved somehow? Or should he be looked at at all? We can't ignore the two weeks that led up to Ray's death and the events that occurred. The books about Freemasonry, a man startling Ray at the track, Ray figuring something out, the call to Porter, and then the two house alarms. It all seems all too coincidental to not be something more. Perhaps it is a secret that he wasn't supposed to find out or something else happened that night. 
Stay tuned for part two. I will be exploring this case in depth, including that potentially coded note. Perhaps we'll have some answers. Subscribe if you haven't done so. Please like and please share. Don't forget to comment in the comments below. And if you'd like to take a look at the books that I mentioned, please look in the description. Thank you so much for watching. See you soon.